The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. This morning we return to a portion of Deuteronomy chapter 32. That whole chapter is a a song, most of it's a song, as we looked at last week, we looked at the whole big chunk, 50-some verses last week, and we saw in it that it is a warning, it is an instruction, command to us that that is intended by God to come and to, to, to fall on us like a gentle rain and soak in and produce growth and life. So at the beginning... And then Moses reiterated it at the end in in what our section is going to be this morning. That this is a warning, an instruction that's supposed to be a blessing to us. We looked at all of it last week and I'm taking just a piece of it this morning. Verses 44 to 47. Obviously that means there's things I'm going to skip from the larger context. but But I'm focusing on this section this morning because I want to have a chance to talk about and think about the theme of these four verses. The theme that we'll see, God's Word. Life for his people. That's the, the emphasis here. My prayer this morning is that God will speak to you and will call you to his word. Wherever you are, if, if you're a Christian or not, of, of what, whatever experience or familiarity you have with the Bible, my, my prayer is that God would call you to this book. And he would meet you in it and would feed you from it. That you would find great profit here. It's my hope this morning. So I'm going to read this text, it's a short one, and make, therefore, then just a couple of short orienting comments and spend most of the time on my, my two observations. So let me read Deuteronomy 32, 44 to 47. The conclusion of the song. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. He and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you were going over the Jordan to possess." Deuteronomy 32, 44-47. Short passage, obviously. It's the conclusion of that song that he spoke to all of Israel, adults and children together. Moses did it, comma. Actually, Joshua did it too. Joshua's kind of right alongside it. There's a little point in that. Joshua's already been, previously, a couple chapters ago, commissioned to be the next leader. So Moses is still the guy, but Joshua's there too. Moses is the guy who presents the song. Joshua does too. Moses is the one talking about the land. Joshua's going to take him there. There's, there's a little point here that, that it's not about a guy. It's not about Moses. Joshua will do too. Because it's actually about God. This is God's word. It can come through Moses. It can come through Joshua. It's God's word. So Moses presents it, and so does Joshua. All the words of this song. And then in 45, the scope widens. All the words that Moses spoke. 46, he says, Take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you and teach them to the kids so they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For this is no empty word for you. But by this word you shall live. What's the subject? The word. Words. Six times in these four verses. The word word is used. The Word of God given by God to Moses to be given to the people. And God's people are to receive it with a reverent attitude. Take this Word to heart. Take it in. Not not just in a formal memory, but take it in to heart. Get it in so that it is digested and internalized and breaks up in you and produces growth. Like like the water falling on on the earth would, would sink in and would saturate and produce growth. And then teach it to your children. Notice there's a little connection here. Take it in. That you may teach it to your kids. That then they may do it. 
They're not supposed to just know some formal information. They need to be, be followers, doers of this, not just hearers. They need to be doers of this word. And they're going to be that kind of, of receivers if you present it from a heart that's taken it in. A little progression there. So take it to heart. Teach it to them so that they can do it. It's a string of thought there. And it must be internalized and passed on and done. 4.47 This word is no empty word. It is not light and fluffy and meaningless. It is substantive and crucial. It is life. This word that comes from God is life. By keeping it, you can experience the blessing of God. Life. Long life in the promised land. That's the passage couple of short verses there. Obviously a subsection of a larger section. And so I'm focusing on a particular topic here. The Word of God. Life for His people. So here's my main sentence and you'll probably recognize this sentence from somewhere else. Main point for this morning that I'm going to work on. We cannot live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We cannot, we, the people of God, we human beings, in fact, we cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Thankfully, God has rained down from heaven water that will soak into the land and produce wheat that we can grind up and make physical bread and physically eat it and physically live. But more than that, thankfully, He has rained down from heaven His Word that will soak into us and produce growth on which we can live. Jesus said that. In case you didn't identify, that's Jesus' words, which of course is a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8. We must have the Word of God for life. That's what I'm going to expand on this morning in two observations. We move immediately here to the first one. The first main point. The Bible alone is God's Word to all the world. The Bible alone, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, the Bible, not anything in addition to it, not anything that's bound under the same cover, not anything that's added on top or came before, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament alone are God's Word to all of the world, speaking to every culture, every people, from every time, from every economic and every educational class, every race, one Word. This book, the Bible alone, is God's Word. And, and I say God's Word because that's the, that's the phrasing that's used in the passage repeatedly. But some will say, well, that's Moses saying, these words of the song that I just spoke to you. These words that I command you. Clearly, yeah, clearly. It's coming out of Moses' mouth. Where do you get it? If we look back at the beginning of this song, it's pretty clear. Chapter 31, verse 19. God speaking to Moses. God says to Moses, Teach this song. Here is this song. Pass this song along. God's giving the song to Moses. Then Moses passes it along. Or all these words that I command you in, in verse 46, where did those words come from that Moses commanded? Yeah, they came out of Moses' mouth. Well, we could look back a little further. Deuteronomy chapter 5, and you can look everywhere in the book. Deuteronomy 5, verse 22. These words the Lord spoke audibly in that case to Moses. And Moses then passed him on. Or a little later in the chapter, verse 27, the people say to Moses, Go near to God, and Moses, you hear all that the Lord will say, and then you pass it on to us. Clearly, what we have here is God speaking to Moses and Moses speaking to the people. This is not the words of a human being. This is the Word of God. It's a repeated pattern throughout the whole Bible. God breathes out His Word. Human beings receive it and either in, with their own voices or with their own pens, pass it on. 
The Scripture is God-breathed out of His very mouth. It is the Word of God. God did not do this with any other non-biblical writer. Not writers who write Christian books. Not writers who have written other books that they claim have come from God. Other religious texts. Only these 66 books of the Bible. There is no other word from God at all, anywhere on earth, anywhere in time. What? That's a huge claim. I'm trying to use a lot of absolutes and cut off a lot of corners here. This is God's Word. And shelves and nightstands and coffee tables throughout this valley and across the world have all kinds of other things on them that they claim are God's Word. And they are lies. It is not a word from God unless it is this 66 books of the Bible. That's a huge claim. That's an arrogant claim. How can you say that? Well, I hope to not be arrogant in my attitude while trying to be extremely clear. But it is, granted, it is a huge claim which warrants the question, how can you say that? A Christian can say that God's written word is only in this book for a couple of two different reasons. A couple of two different categories. And and hang with me on this because I am departing from what is right in this text. I'm doing something that I need to do occasionally here because we need to talk about why do we talk about this book. So this isn't actually in the text, but it supports why we want to bother listening to the text. So I'm going to ask you to think about some things here. Maybe this will be helpful for you directly, or maybe it will be helpful for the guy who works right next door to you, or the gal who lives next door to you. There are a couple of two different, I'll call them categories of reasons, a couple of two different reasons that a Christian says this alone is God's book. There are volumes written about this. And if you want more information, talk to me. I've got other resources I can give to you or loan you or point you towards. I'm just going to be giving a summary here, obviously. But the two broad categories. One, the first one I'm going to call objective supporting evidence. First category, the first reason that a Christian like myself is going to say, this only is God's Word. Objective supporting evidence. A book from God would be truthful because He's the God of truth. He is always truthful. So we can look at this objectively, sift through it, and we find that it is first internally consistent. It matches itself from beginning to end all throughout, which is saying something given that it has countless different authors across thousands of years on multiple continents many of whom did not have the privilege of reading what had already been written, and yet what they produced came out matching it. Huh. It is internally consistent. It matches itself. And it is externally consistent. It matches the world out there. It matches history and archaeology and geography, political writings. Wherever we have evidence in in those other fields and we put the Bible next to it, it matches. It's consistent. It does not contradict. Now, I don't want to overstate this. There are plenty of things that we don't have evidence for because a lot of this happened a long time ago and has been lost to history. That's true. But where it does exist, it matches. It's talking about the real world, contrary to other documents that claim to come from God that are not talking about a world that actually existed. That are making things up. This matches a real world. It it matches reality. It's a book that's rooted in the real. And it displays an author because of that. It displays an author with a capital A. It displays an author who knew what would be real long before it came to pass. I'm referring to the prophetic nature of this book. This book not just matches history that already happened. It matches history 
that was yet to happen. You, you, you work through this book and you find it naming things, like places where the Messiah would be born. Something he can't control. Places where he would be buried. Another thing that he couldn't control if he was just a human being. The name of the ruler who would come and conquer Israel before he was the ruler. Before he conquered Israel. It is prophetic from front to back. It is miraculous. It displays the hand of God doing things that do not happen. Displayed, written down right in front of the people who saw them and could refute them if they wanted to. The the best example of that and the most important element that links all of these things together is God's saving work on the cross. From front to back, talked about consistently. Prophetically spoken of. Happening in history. Miraculous event. Resurrection from the dead in a city where nobody wanted that to happen and everybody disagreed with it and to refute it could have walked right down the street and opened up the tomb and pulled out the body if it had been there. But it wasn't. There is something about this book that breaks all the categories of every other alleged writing from God. There is evidence here Objective things to look at and evaluate. That's the the first general category, the objective evidence. But there is a second category that is important. I'm going to call that subjective confirmation of the evidence. Subjective confirmation of the evidence. And catch the relationship here. This is not a contrary thing. They're complementary. There is a body of evidence and there is a subjective confirmation of that evidence. Not an ignoring of the evidence. This is different than saying, well, despite all the evidence, I believe it anyway. Or regardless of the evidence, I'm convinced it's true. This is something helps me to see this evidence actually is true. Which is important because evidence can always be read two ways, can't it? That's the nature of evidence. People look at it and draw different conclusions. I know people, I've had conversations with people who do not believe the Holocaust happened. I'm not talking about irrational Iranian leaders. I'm talking about normal, average, Midwestern Americans that I've had conversations with as they worked through with me why the evidence actually indicates the Holocaust didn't happen. It was all made up, forged, misread, exaggerated perhaps. The definitive reason that we human beings can know that all of that body of objective evidence has not been misread or made up or exaggerated is that God the Holy Spirit comes and confirms it, lifts it up before us and causes us to see it properly. If God would move in you, what He would do is He would send His Spirit and open your eyes and cause you to see, oh, there's the evidence. There's the int- it matches. It matches itself. It matches the actual world up there. It was prophetic from beginning to end. It actually happened. And look at the miraculous hand of God. This is God's book. Not, careful, not despite all the evidence, but because of the evidence. Lots of people claim religious truth based on their feelings. This is claiming that God says, look at the truth, and we see it and realize it is true. That is the evidence. It's right there. This is God's book. Does that make us ignore the evidence? He helps us to believe it, and we need that. We need God to intervene to help us to believe it because we are all born unbelieving. 
There is a huge reality that we have to reckon with here. We are all born bent against God. We are born blind. We are born resistant and disinclined to find truth and submit to it. So what I'm talking about here is a tremendous work of God's grace that He would come and not just lay out the evidence in front of us. If that was all He did, we would reject it. But that He would also come with His Holy Spirit and in the hearts of His people lift, them, lift up this evidence and cause you to see it and believe it. This is a work of God's grace. As God the Spirit confirms for us the evidence and shows us this is God's Word, His only Word, and therefore binding on all of the world. Therefore, God's Word speaking to all of us. There is one book. And I imagine, I mean, I'm pretty confident that there are a lot of us here who are, are kind of saying, I knew that. Well, maybe you did. Praise God if you did. Praise God if you could put it in that order and are presenting it to people who don't know that because there are scads of people who don't know that. But I think even for those of us here who, who say properly, I knew that and you did know that, the reason that I'm rehearsing all this is that I'm, I'm going to move to something else in a minute. And if you actually knew this, if you believed with all of your heart that God has actually stooped to speak to you in this book. Think about this for a minute. We're way too casual with this book. I mean, I can look at it. Mine was printed at some building in Illinois. I, if I look hard enough, I could probably find the person who typed it all out. It's, it's, it's very human, isn't it? It's very ordinary, and I have a dozen of them at home. So sometimes I look at this one, sometimes I look at that one, sometimes I don't look at any of them. But I, yeah, it's God's Word. If you actually believed that the God of the universe had bothered to communicate something to you and written it in your own language and put it right in your lap right now, what would you be doing with that in your lap right now? How would you view it differently than how you actually view it? I know I've got, with everything I just said, I've got large-scale agreement at the intellectual level. And a lot of you are kind of, kind of maybe a little bored with what I'm talking about and, and kind of wonder when I'm going to get on to something else. You don't believe this. You don't actually believe this is God's Word. Yeah, you do, but you don't. If you did, you'd eat this thing like honey. But I think also there are some of us here who, who don't know this. And I would encourage you, you must look into it. Because if this is God's Word to us, that means this is the place where God has told you what's going on. And you're walking around in the pitch black night without a flashlight. I had that experience recently. I was in the mountains and I was at an event where it was lighted and I walked out of that event and it was totally dark. And, I, and I'm just feeling my way towards where I think I parked my car. I could not see, a, I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. It was so dark. And I began to think, critters live up here. <laughs> so I'm scuffling my feet in the gravel, <laughs> you know, trying to Make them aware something big's coming. Maybe they'll be intimidated. But I, I feel my way towards the car. That's no way to go through life. Particularly because this book is what gives life. Which takes me to my second point. This book 
is God's Word alone to us. He has, he has stooped down to speak. Why? Here's the second observation. But the purpose. God has given us the Bible not to keep us in line, but to give us life. This Bible is a tremendous, gracious gift. It is something immensely precious because in it God gives life. Now, a lot of us think contrary, especially when we hear words like they're in this passage, command, law, warning. We interpret that to be a God spoke to keep you in line. And He's warning you, don't step out. He's commanding you with a law. That's how we think about it, but keep reading. You've misinterpreted Keep reading, down to verse 47. For this is no empty word for you, but your very life. By this word you will live long in the land. Deuteronomy 8, quoting Jesus, You cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Think that through what that means, that most people are physically alive, but not alive. Because they're not eating this word. Now, we're talking about life. Obviously, I'm not talking just about physical existence. That is an element of it. There is much in this book that if we actually took it in and followed it, would help our physical lives to progress better, longer, more profitably, etc. There is an element of the physical here, but that's not the main thrust by any stretch. Life here. The life that God's Word provides to the person who takes it to heart is spiritual in nature. Here on this earth and on and on and on for eternity. It is living, this life is living in the presence of and under the blessing of God in communion with Him who made you and made you to be filled up with Him alone. And He will communicate Himself in this book so as to meet you and fill you. He does that primarily by displaying Himself in all of His multifaceted glory. He is the main character in every story. We misread the Bible if we think the people are the main character. We misread the Bible if we think the Bible's about us. It's not. You're reading a biography. This is about God. And it's showing Him. He's the main character everywhere. And so we read what we're seeing is Him. And the plot of this story, in, in particular what we see here and are reminded of, is the work that this main character is doing. The great saving work of a people. That's the grand plot of the Bible being carried out by the, the main character of the Bible, God. And He's constantly working it out, as I mentioned already, and it all culminates in the cross forecast in the old, fulfilled in the new. God came to earth just like He said He would. He came Himself to shepherd His people. He came Himself to be the people's prince and king. He came Himself to deal with the people's sin problem. By pouring out His own wrath on Himself. The wrath of God the Father satisfied in God the Son crucified on the cross for you if you trust Him. That's the story. And you read that. And you see it on every page. God working to save a people. God in grace is written down for you. And God in grace opens your eyes to it. You see that. And you begin to learn about who this God is. He is a God who loves His people. Which is you. Which means He loves you. This is the God who delivers His people, which is you. If you're a Christian, it means He's delivered you. This is the God who can be trusted by His people, which is you. You can trust Him. He's your only hope, but He's the only hope you need. 
As you come to read about Him and you see Him and God the Spirit opens your eyes to every page and you understand more and more about who He is and what He's doing, what happens is that supernaturally something moves into you. The love of God. The joy of God. The peace of God. The patience of God. Life. You describe it in all those phrases, but we could just sum it up and say it's the thing that every single person on earth wants. Ask anybody. Do you want to live knowing and experiencing love and joy and peace and hope and rest and be able to look at circumstances and know they're going to work out? To know that someone's in charge and is doing good to you? Do you want to live like that? Yes or no? Of course. That's life. It comes here from this book. That God gave to you in your own language, in your own hands, probably many of us, in your own hands right now, maybe at home on your countertop. Why? Why? Why do we spend so much time setting it aside and chasing life everywhere else? I'm talking about a lot of things you intellectually know, but for many of us, many of us deal with this book like this. Now, where am I going to go? And not like this. Why? We we spend so much time chasing life, chasing for hope and love and contentment, rest, forgiveness of sin, a removal of guilt from ourselves. We spend so much time trying to prove ourselves not guilty so we can be released from that rather than finding that in the Scriptures from God. Surely that is a great tragedy filled with much sorrow. It's fruitless. We run after it all the time. Surely that is a great tragedy and surely it is a great sin to have the life-giving Word of God in our hands and not be diligent to take it to heart. Men and women of God, surely it is a great sin to neglect the deep soaking in this book that is required if we are to have life and life to the full. Parents, surely it is a great sin that having this book, you do not pass it on to your children from a heart that has taken it in so as to incline them to believe it. You know what could be here. They, in their youthful ignorance, don't yet, and you don't pass it on. Surely that is a great sin. God forgive us. God forgive me. I'm not just talking about you. I'm talking about me. Us. Brothers and sisters, let me plead with you. Psalm 1 says that blessed is the man, verse 2 of Psalm 1, whose delight is in the law of the Lord and on His law he meditates day and night. He meditates. Do you meditate? That is not just taking in more head knowledge. That's mulling it over. That's chewing on it. That's running it back through. Constantly pondering. What is God showing me here that He's like? You get a text. You're mulling it over. You're meditating on it day and night. What is God showing me He's like here? Mm -hmm. Who are you? What is this saying about you? What do I see here that I need to trust about you? What do I need to see or that I need to repent of? Turn from or, or turn to? What are you warning me away from? What are you calling me to? What does that mean for this circumstance? Hmm. 
You're meditating on it. Take another text. What does it mean when it says that Christ is my righteousness? What does that mean? I mean, I can write it out in English, but what does it mean for my, my life? What does it mean when it says that because of what has happened at the cross and Christ paying for my sin, that I, I now do not face condemnation but stand in His grace? What does that mean? Well, I think it would mean that, that in God's eyes I am righteous and not condemned despite my sin. And that He accepts me no matter what I do. And so I don't have to pretend and fake it. I don't have to live a life performing constantly. They don't have to expect that from other people either. If they are Christians, they are forgiven, the righteous in His eyes. Hmm. I can actually live released from this rat race that I'm running to try to prove myself good enough. Meditating on it. Every one of us has heard, Christ is my righteousness. How often have you meditated on For how long have you meditated on that? He meditates. Blessed is that man. Result, Psalm 1, verse 3. He meditates. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. Life. So my plea, my prayer, my plea, Take it to heart. Take to heart all these words. They are not light and empty words, idle talk, stuff to intellectually know. They are your very life. By them, God means to communicate to you Himself for your joy, for your hope, for your peace, for your rest. Life. Do not neglect it. So I plead with you, start viewing all of life, I mean all the time that makes up your days, as opportunity for this Word to be ministered to you. To be sown into your heart. Rather than how we are perhaps more prone to look at it is, I set aside a small portion, perhaps, maybe, I read the Bible then, close it up, and go out. View all of your day. Meditate day and night. View all of your day as an opportunity to either put your eyes on this page or run it around in your head. Meditate. Take it in. Chew on it. It's life. Practically, what do I mean? Well, just a couple of, I think, obvious things. You may have noticed that we aren't aiming to structure this worship service, this corporate gathering, to be entertaining. You may have noticed that. Which is not to say that there will be no joy here. It's to say that there will be joy here that is of the sort of somebody who's about something serious and is finding it and is rejoicing over it. If, if we are about pursuing life and life is found in this book, we don't have time to entertain ourselves to death. We gather here particularly at this time to minister the Word in a corporate setting, in prayer and in worship and in preaching and in listening. Expect that. Don't sell for anything less. Not here and not when you leave here and go to other gatherings with other Christians. I know a lot of us are going to go to gospel community groups this afternoon, which incidentally is the other main gathering of our church but not just a meeting or a gathering. This, this idea is still in infancy here for us, but don't think of it as a meeting that happens two times a month. It is a community. It's a little body, a little church. And ours is going to meet this afternoon at the Lowe's house. But should meet every other day too in little pieces, people here and there. 
but some of us are going to gather. You should be thinking at that time, this is how we can minister the Word to each other. Here we are. We're going to talk about what's going on at work. How does the Word apply to what's going on at work? Or talk about how things are going on in your family. How does the Word apply to that? What kind of hope do you need? What kind of guidance do you need? It's here, somewhere. Do you know where it is? Can you help? Opportunity to minister the Word to each other. Particularly, my, my plea is for you when you're by yourself, all by yourself. And if you're like under the age of 20, if you're under the age of 10, I'm still talking to you. Maybe even if you're a teenager, I am especially talking to you. Because when you're 25 and starting to have kids, it's not the time to try to go find your Bible again. When you are by yourself alone and the house is quiet, I plead with you, take your Bible, take a pencil and a pad of paper and go meet your gracious God who is longing to speak to you. Here's a simple plan. Take, take the Bible, a pencil, and a notebook and go write down these three questions and then write down the answers to them. What do I learn about God here? What do I learn about me here? How am I supposed to respond to Him? Now there's a whole lot more that could be said. Perhaps people in your gospel community group can help you with that. But start there if you don't know what else to do. What do I learn about God here? What do I learn about me here? How am I supposed to respond to that? I was pursuing something similar with Psalm 60. If you can flip to it quickly, look at Psalm 60. An example of how this can be done. Walking through that psalm. I'm not, I'm not going to read it, so you can jot it down if you want to just listen to me. First several verses of that song. I read it, and what leaps out is who's the active party? God is. The Lord does this. The Lord does that. The Lord brings this. And what, it, what is it all? If, you're, if your eyes are on it, you can see. It's trouble. What do I learn about God there? First question. I learn that God sometimes brings trouble. He does it. Clear as a bell in those verses. That's different for a lot of us. He's doing it. And then read verse 4. I think it's verse 4. This, this caught me when I was reading it. The Lord has raised up a banner that those who fear Him may flee to it from the bow. Bow as in bow and arrow. The, the enemy that the previous verses He's implied are, are being brought by Him. The enemy's coming. And the Lord also, here's something else to learn about, the God, about God. God has raised up a banner, a flag of an army that those who fear Him may flee to Him from the bow. So God brings trouble and God raises up a banner. His own strength. What do I learn about me? That I need to be in that sort of situation because I'm not inclined to run to Him. God's doing something there. He's creating trouble and He's pushing me to Him. I need that. I wouldn't go otherwise. How am I supposed to respond? By fearing Him and fleeing to Him. That's easy. It's quick. Right there. So then I take that and I apply it to the problems in my life. What are the issues that I'm facing? I, I, there's nobody with a bow and arrow chasing me around that I'm aware of. So what's the bow? What, what's the enemy? What's the trouble that I need to flee from? Flee from to Him. What is that? I start thinking through. You could write it on your sheet of paper. I'm supposed to respond by fleeing to Him from, name it, be specific. From the fear of this or that person. From the worry that I experience that my finances are, are failing because I haven't had a job in a while. I'm supposed to flee from that. God actually brought that? Huh. Nothing happens outside God's control. Why did He bring that? So that you would run to Him. Name it. Work it through. Meditate on that day and night. 
It's not intellectually complicated. Difficulty is going to be like what I encountered yesterday afternoon. I had some time on my hands. What do I want to do? Knowing that I'm going to preach this, one thing popped in my mind, I could take my Bible and go sit down and read it. I don't know. Serious. Totally serious. Knowing that I'm about to preach this. That's what came to my mind. Ah, What else could I do? Totally serious. That's the problem. The the problem is not that I didn't understand what I was just talking about, those questions and how to study the Bible. That's not the problem. The problem is I don't actually believe that life is found here. I don't actually believe that God has stooped to speak in this book. Intellectually I do, intellectually all you do, but we don't. What I believed for a short period of time there yesterday was, I hope there's some college football on TV. Would you believe there was not? (laughs) There was not. I, I could not believe that. Saturday afternoon. Tennis. That made it easy. <laughs> That's what I actually believed. Uh, yeah, this is God's Word. He has given it to me for life. wonder what's on TV. In my heart, yesterday. Yours too. So I'm pleading with you, but I also said this is my prayer, because I can't just plead with you as if this is all an intellectual issue. I'll ask you, you'll hear it, it'll seem reasonable to you, you'll say yes. All the evidence that this is a good idea is there, but we need God the Spirit to come and lift it up in front of your eyes so that you will actually believe the evidence. Absolutely that's God's Word. And absolutely it is life for me. And I did find... I didn't go to Psalm 60 yesterday afternoon. I went to the next chapter, but I didn't want to use that because I'm going to preach it next week. I went to Psalm uh, Deuteronomy 33. And I worked on it. And I worked on it. And it was hot. And I was sweating. And I wanted to be done. I was dozing off. But I said no. And I worked on it. And God, by grace, met me. And verses 26, oh man. Verses 26 to 29 became sweet. I'm not going to talk about them because I'm going to preach about them next week. But they became sweet to me and He met me and gave me life. Not in the first half hour. Did you catch that? It did not happen in the first half hour. In the first half hour, I was nodding off. If I hadn't gotten through the first half hour, I wouldn't have found it. God graciously kept me there. I'm not talking about my own wonderful self-discipline. I'm telling you I was falling asleep reading the Bible, okay? So I'm not trying to lift myself up here. But I'm telling you, God graciously met me after the first half hour. Do you need to stick at it more than a half hour? Do you need to come to this spot and say, God, there's life here. Where is it? I'm falling asleep. Show me. Plead with Him. Pray, God, open the eyes of my heart that I might behold wonderful things in Your law. I'm not seeing them right now. Help. Maybe like the persistent widow, He wants you to ask that more than once. See if you really mean it. Really? 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 Okay, here it is. You cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Graciously He has spoken and given His Word to us, and I plead with you and pray for you, grab hold of this. Take it to heart. Pass it on. It is life. We're going to move to pray now. We're about to celebrate communion. and I'm going to give us some time. We're going to pray and... Three things that I might suggest you might want to pray about. You might need to repent of neglecting the Word. You might want to thank Him for giving it. And you might want to ask Him for gracious resolve, a gracious thirst or desire to grab it, 
give yourself to it. So think through those things, and in just a minute I'll close this and we'll move to communion. Father, I thank You for Your Word in which You have spoken to us. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here that You would give them a renewed earnestness in going after You in Your Word. That You'd help them to find You. And if You'd create private time for them, that You would create time with other people in which they together meditate on Your Word. You would bless us by coming to us. And for those here who don't know You, Lord, I pray that You would open their eyes and and incline them to read and examine. You would speak truth to them. Draw them to You. Give help to them, Lord. Love them in this way, I pray. Lord, continue as, as we move into this communion time. Would You continue to work on our minds and hearts and draw us to You and, and point out things that need to be dealt with in our minds? Bless us now. Continue to bless us with your presence, I pray. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.